The following was recorded by John Loth and is intended for educational purposes. This recording is not to be sold or distributed for sale. If you wish to support the work and publishing of these recordings, please visit the John Loth Patreon page. If you come across these recordings anywhere else without my expressed support and find that they are requesting donations for presenting this work to you, you will not be supporting the creator by doing so. This is just a friendly warning to anyone who may fall prey to predatory practices I have come across recently. The Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski Chapter 6 Part 2 China Not global, but regional China's history is one of national greatness. The currently intense nationalism of the Chinese people is new only in its social pervasiveness, for it engages the self-identification and the emotions of an unprecedented number of Chinese. It is no longer a phenomenon confined largely to the students who, in the early years of this century, formed the precursors of the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communist Party. Chinese nationalism is now a mass phenomenon, defining the mindset of the world's most populous state. That mindset has deep historical roots. History has predisposed the Chinese elite to think of China as the natural center of the world. In fact, the Chinese word for China, Chuku, or the Middle Kingdom, both conveys the notion of China's centrality in world affairs and reaffirms the importance of national unity. That perspective also implies a hierarchical radiation of influence from the center to the peripheries, and thus China as the center expects deference from others. Moreover, since time immemorial, China with its vast population has been a distinctive and proud civilization all its own. That civilization was highly advanced in all areas. Philosophy, culture, the arts, social skills, technical inventiveness, and political power. The Chinese recall that until approximately 1600, China led the world in agricultural productivity, industrial innovation, and standard of living. But unlike the European and Islamic civilizations, which have spawned some 75-odd states, China has remained, for most of its history, a single state, which, at the time of America's Declaration of Independence, already contained more than 200 million people and was also the world's leading manufacturing power. From that perspective, China's fall from greatness, the last 150 years of China's humiliation, is an aberration, a desecration of China's special quality and a personal insult to every individual Chinese. It must be erased, and its perpetrators deserve due punishment. These perpetrators, in varying degrees, have primarily been four. Great Britain, Japan, Russia, and America. Great Britain because of the Opium War and its consequent shameful debasement of China. Japan, because of its predatory wars spanning the last century, resulting in terrible, and still unrepented, infliction of suffering on the Chinese people. Russia, because of protracted encroachment on Chinese territories in the north, as well as Stalin's domineering insensitivity toward Chinese self-esteem. 
And finally, America, because through its Asian presence and support of Japan, it stands in the way of China's external aspirations. In the Chinese view, two of these four powers have already been punished, so to speak, by history. Great Britain is no longer an empire, and the lowering of the Union Jack in Hong Kong forever closes that particularly painful chapter. Russia remains next door, though much diminished in stature, prestige, and territory. It is America and Japan that pose the most serious problems for China, and it is in the interaction with them that China's regional and global role will be substantively defined. That definition, however, will depend in the first instance on how China itself evolves, on how much of an economic and military power it actually becomes. On this score, the prognosis for China is generally promising though not without some major uncertainties and qualifications, both the pace of China's economic growth and the scale of foreign investment in China, each among the highest in the world, provide the statistical basis for the conventional prognosis that within two decades or so, China will become a global power, roughly on par with the United States and Europe, assuming that the latter both unites and expands further. China might by then have a GDP considerably less excess of China's. China might then have a GDP considerably in excess of Japan's, and it already exceeds Russia's by a significant margin. That economic momentum should permit China to acquire military power on a scale that will be intimidating to all its neighbors, perhaps even to more geographically distant opponents of China's aspirations further strengthened by the incorporation of Hong Kong and Macau, and perhaps also eventually by the political subordination of Taiwan, a greater China will emerge not only as the dominant state in the Far East, but as a world power of the first rank. However, there are pitfalls in any such prognosis for the Middle Kingdom's inevitable resurrection as a central global power the most obvious of which pertains to the mechanical reliance on statistical projection. That very error was made not long ago by those who prophesied that Japan would supplant the United States as the world's leading economy, and that Japan was destined to be the new superstate. That perspective failed to take into account both the factor of Japan's economic vulnerability and the problem of political discontinuity and the same error is being made by those who proclaim, and also fear, the inevitable emergence of China as a world power. First of all, it is far from certain that China's explosive growth rates can be maintained over the next two decades. An economic slowdown cannot be excluded, and that by itself would discredit the conventional prognosis. In fact, for these rates to be sustained over a historically long period of time would require an unusually felicitous combination of effective national leadership, political tranquility, domestic social discipline, high rates of savings, continued very high inflow of foreign investment, and regional stability. A prolonged combination of all of these positive factors is problematic. Moreover, China's fast pace of growth is likely to produce political side effects that could limit its freedom of action. Chinese consumption of energy is already expanding at a rate that far exceeds domestic production. That excess will widen in any case, but especially so if China's rate of growth continues to be very high. 
The same is the case with food. Even given the slowdown in China's demographic growth, the Chinese population is still increasing in large, absolute numbers, with food imports becoming more essential to internal well-being and political stability. Dependence on imports will not only impose strains on Chinese economic resources because of higher costs, but they will also make China more vulnerable to external pressures. Militarily, China might partially qualify as a global power, since the very size of its economy and its high growth rates should enable its rulers to divert a significant ratio of the country's GDP to sustain a major expansion and modernization of China's armed forces, including a further buildup of its strategic nuclear arsenal. However, if the effort is excessive, and, according to some Western estimates, in the mid-1990s it was already consuming about 20% of China's GDP, it could have the same negative effect on China's long-term economic growth that the failed attempt by the Soviet Union to compete in the arms race with the United States had on the Soviet economy. Furthermore, a major Chinese effort in this area would be likely to precipitate a countervailing Japanese arms buildup thereby negating some of the political benefits of China's growing military prowess. And one must not ignore the fact that outside of its nuclear forces, China is likely to lack the means, for some time to come, to project its military power beyond its regional perimeter. Tensions within China can also intensify as a result of the inevitable unevenness of highly accelerated economic growth driven heavily by the uninhibited exploitation of marginal advantages. The coastal south and east, as well as the principal urban centers, more accessible to foreign investment and overseas trade, have so far been the major beneficiaries of China's impressive economic growth. In contrast, the inland rural areas, in general, and some of the outlying regions, have lagged, with upward of 100 million rural unemployed. The resulting resentment over regional disparities could begin to interact with anger over social inequality. China's rapid growth is widening the social gap in the distribution of wealth. At some point, either because the government may seek to limit such differences or because of social resentment from below, the regional disparities and the wealth gap could in turn impact on the country's political stability. The second reason for cautious skepticism regarding the widespread prognosis of China's emergence during the next quarter of a century as a dominating power in global affairs is, indeed, the future of China's politics. The dynamic character of China's non-statist economic transformation, including its social openness to the rest of the world, is not mutually compatible in the long run with a relatively closed and bureaucratically rigid communist dictatorship. The proclaimed communism of that dictatorship is progressively less a matter of ideological commitment and more a matter of bureaucratic vested interest. The Chinese political elite remains organized as a self-contained, rigid, disciplined, and monopolistically intolerant hierarchy still ritualistically proclaiming its fidelity to a dogma that is said to justify its power, but that the same elite is no longer implementing socially. At some point, these two dimensions of life will collide head-on, unless Chinese politics begins to adapt gradually to the social imperatives of China's economics. Thus, 
The issue of democratization cannot be evaded indefinitely. Unless China suddenly makes the same decision it made in the year 1474, to isolate itself from the world, somewhat like contemporary North Korea. To do that, China would have to recall its more than 70,000 students currently studying in America, expel foreign businessmen, shut down its computers, and tear down satellite dishes from millions of Chinese homes. It would be an act of madness reminiscent of the Cultural Revolution. Perhaps for a brief moment, in the context of a domestic struggle for power, a dogmatic wing of the ruling but fading Chinese Communist Party might attempt to emulate North Korea. But it could not be more than a brief episode. More likely than not, it would produce economic stagnation, and then prompt a political explosion. In any case, self-isolation would mean the end of any serious Chinese aspirations, not only to global power, but even to regional primacy. Moreover, the country has too much of a stake in access to the world, and that world, unlike that of 1474, is simply too intrusive to be effectively excluded. There is thus no practical, economically productive, and politically viable alternative to China's continued openness to the world. Democratization will thus increasingly haunt China. Neither that issue nor the related question of human rights can be evaded for too long. China's future progress, as well as its emergence as a major power, will thus depend to a large degree on how skillfully the ruling Chinese elite handles the two related problems of power, succession from the present generation of rulers to a younger team, and of coping with the growing tension between the country's economic and political systems. The Chinese leaders might perhaps succeed in promoting a slow and evolutionary transition to a very limited electoral authoritarianism in which some low-level political choice is tolerated, and only thereafter move toward more genuine political pluralism, including more emphasis on incipient constitutional rule. Such a controlled transition would be more compatible with the imperatives of the increasingly open economic dynamics of the country than persistent in maintaining exclusive party monopoly on political power. To accomplish such controlled democratization, the Chinese political elite will have to be led with extraordinary skill, guided by pragmatic common sense, and stay relatively united and willing to yield some of its monopoly on power and personal privilege, while the population at large will have to be both patient and undemanding. That combination of felicitous circumstances may prove difficult to attain. Experience teaches that pressure for democratization from below either from those who have felt themselves politically suppressed, intellectuals and students, or economically exploited, the new urban labor class and the rural poor, generally tend to outpace the willingness of rulers to yield. At some point, the politically and the socially disaffected in China are likely to join forces in demanding more democracy, freedom of expression, and respect for human rights. That did not happen in Tiananmen Square in 1989 but it might well happen the next time. Accordingly, it is unlikely that China will be able to avoid a phase of political unrest. Given its size, the reality of growing regional differences, and the legacy of some fifty years of doctrinal dictatorship, such a phase could be disruptive both politically and economically. 
Even the Chinese leaders themselves seemed to expect as much, with internal Communist Party studies undertaken in the early 1990s foreseeing potentially serious political unrest. Some China experts have even prophesied that China might spin into one of its historic cycles of internal fragmentation, thereby halting China's march to greatness altogether. But the probability of such an extreme eventuality is diminished by the twin impacts of mass nationalism and modern communications, both of which work in favor of a unified Chinese state. There is, finally, a third reason for skepticism regarding the prospects of China's emergence in the course of the next twenty or so years as a truly major, and to some Americans already menacing, global power. Even if China avoids serious political disruptions, and even if it somehow manages to sustain its extraordinarily high rates of economic growth over a quarter of a century, which are both rather big ifs, China would still be relatively very poor. Even a tripling of GDP would leave China's population in the lower ranks of the world's nations in per capita income, not to mention the actual poverty of a significant portion of its people. Its comparative standing in per capita access to telephones, cars, and computers, let alone consumer goods, would be very low. To sum it up, even by the year 2020, it is quite unlikely even under the best of circumstances, that China could become truly competitive in the key dimensions of global power. Even so, however, China is well on the way to becoming the preponderant regional power in East Asia. It is already geopolitically dominant on the mainland. Its military and economic power dwarfs its immediate neighbors, with the exception of India. It is, therefore, only natural that China will increasingly assert itself regionally, in keeping with the dictates of its history, geography, and economics. Chinese students of their country's history know that as recently as 1840, China's imperial sway extended throughout Southeast Asia, all the way down to the Strait of Malacca, including Burma, parts of today's Bangladesh, as well as Nepal, portions of today's Kazakhstan, all of Mongolia, and the region that today is called the Russian Far Eastern Province, north of where the Amur River flows into the ocean. See map on page 14 in chapter 1. These areas were either under some form of Chinese control or paid tribute to China. Franco-British colonial expansion ejected Chinese influence from Southeast Asia during the years 1885 to 1895 while two treaties imposed by Russia in 1858 and 1864 resulted in territorial losses in the Northeast and Northwest. In 1895, following the Sino-Japanese War, China also lost Taiwan. It is almost certain that history and geography will make the Chinese increasingly insistent, even emotionally charged, regarding the necessity of the eventual reunification of Taiwan with the mainland. It is also reasonable to assume that China, as its power grows, will make that goal its principal objective during the first decade of the next century, following the economic absorption and political digestion of Hong Kong. Perhaps a peaceful reunification, maybe under a formula of one nation, several systems, a variant of Deng Xiaoping's 1984 slogan, One Country, Two Systems, 
might become appealing to Taiwan and would not be resisted by America, but only if China has been successful in sustaining its economic progress and adopting significant democratizing reforms. Otherwise, even a regionally dominant China is still likely to lack the military means to impose its will, especially in the face of American opposition, in which case the issue is bound to continue galvanizing Chinese nationalism while souring American-Chinese relations. Geography is also an important factor driving the Chinese interest in making an alliance with Pakistan and establishing a military presence in Burma. In both cases, India is the geostrategic target. Close military cooperation with Pakistan increases India's security dilemmas and limits India's ability to establish itself as the regional hegemon in South Asia and as a geopolitical rival to China. Military cooperation with Burma gains China access to naval facilities on several Burmese offshore islands in the Indian Ocean, thereby also providing some further strategic leverage in Southeast Asia generally and in the Strait of Malacca particularly. And if China were to control the Strait of Malacca and the geostrategic choke point at Singapore, it would control Japan's access to Middle Eastern oil and European markets. Geography, reinforced by history, also dictates China's interests in Korea. At one time, a tributary state, a reunited Korea as an extension of American and indirectly also of Japanese influence would be intolerable to China. At the very minimum, China would insist that a reunited Korea be a non-aligned buffer between China and Japan and would also expect that the historically rooted Korean animosity toward Japan would, of itself, draw Korea into the Chinese sphere of influence. For the time being, however, a divided Korea suits China best, and thus China is likely to favor the continued existence of the North Korean regime. Economic considerations are also bound to influence the thrust of China's regional ambitions. In that regard, the rapidly growing demand for new energy sources has already made China insistent on a dominant role in any regional exploitation of the seabed deposits of the South China Sea. For the same reason, China is beginning to display an increasing interest in the independence of the energy-rich Central Asian states. In April 1996, China, Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan signed a joint border and security agreement, and, during President Jiang Zemin's visit to Kazakhstan in July of the same year, the Chinese side was quoted as having provided assurances of China's support for, quote, the efforts made by Kazakhstan to defend its independence, sovereignty, and territorial integrity. The foregoing clearly signaled China's growing involvement in the geopolitics of Central Asia. History and economics also conspired to increase the interest of a regionally more powerful China in Russia's Far East. For the first time since China and Russia have come to share a formal border, China is the economically more dynamic and politically stronger party. Seepage into the Russian area by Chinese immigrants and traders has already assumed significant proportions, and China is becoming more active in promoting Northeast Asian cooperation. Russia now holds a much weaker card. 
and China is becoming more active in promoting Northeast Asian economic cooperation that also engages Japan and Korea. In that cooperation, Russia now holds a much weaker card, while the Russian Far East increasingly becomes economically dependent on closer links with China's Manchuria. Similar economic forces are also at work in China's relations with Mongolia, which is no longer a Russian satellite and whose formal independence China has reluctantly recognized. A Chinese sphere of regional influence is thus in the making. A sphere of influence, however, should not be confused with a zone of exclusive political domination, such as the Soviet Union exercised in Eastern Europe. It is socio-economically more porous and politically less monopolistic. Nonetheless, it entails a geographic space in which its various states, when formulating their own policies, pay special deference to the interests, views, and anticipated reactions of the regionally predominant power. In brief, a Chinese sphere of influence, perhaps a sphere of deference would be a more accurate formulation, can be defined as one in which the very first question asked in the various capitals regarding any given issue is, what is Beijing's view on this? The map that follows traces out the potential range over the next quarter of a century of a regionally dominant China, and also of China as a global power, in the event that, despite the internal and external obstacles already noted, China should actually become one. A regionally dominant Greater China, which would mobilize the political support of its enormously rich and economically powerful diaspora in Singapore, Bangkok, Kuala Lumpur, Manila, and Jakarta, not to speak of Taiwan and Hong Kong, see footnote below for some startling data, and which would penetrate into both Central Asia and the Russian Far East would thus approximate in its radius the scope of the Chinese Empire before the onset of its decline some 150 years ago, even expanding its geopolitical range through the alliance with Pakistan. As China rises in power and prestige, the wealthy overseas Chinese are likely to identify themselves more and more with China's aspirations and will thus become a powerful vanguard of China's imperial momentum. The Southeast Asian states may find it prudent to defer to China's political sensitivities and economic interests, and they are increasingly doing so. Similarly, the new Central Asian states increasingly view China as a power that has a stake in their independence and in their role as buffers between China and Russia. The scope of China as a global power would most probably involve a significantly deeper southern bulge, with both Indonesia and the Philippines compelled to adjust to the reality of the Chinese Navy as the dominant force in the South China Sea. Such a China might be much more tempted to resolve the issue of Taiwan by force, irrespective of America's attitude. In the West, Uzbekistan, the Central Asian state most determined to resist Russian encroachments on its former imperial domain, might favor a countervailing alliance with China as might Turkmenistan, and China might also become more assertive in the ethnically divided and thus nationally vulnerable Kazakhstan. A China that becomes truly both a political and an economic giant might also project more overt political influence into the Russian Far East, while sponsoring Korea's unification under its aegis. See map on page 167. 
but such a bloated China would also be more likely to encounter strong external opposition. The previous map makes it evident that in the West, both Russia and India would have good geopolitical reasons to ally in seeking to push back China's challenge. Cooperation between them would be likely to focus heavily on Central Asia and Pakistan, whence China would threaten their interests the most. In the South, opposition would be strongest from Vietnam and Indonesia, probably backed by Australia. In the East, America, probably backed by Japan, would react adversely to any Chinese efforts to gain predominance in Korea and to incorporate Taiwan by force, actions that would reduce the American political presence in the Far East to a potentially unstable and solitary perch in Japan. Ultimately, the probability of either scenario sketched out on the maps fully coming to pass depends not only on how China itself develops, but also very much on American conduct and presence. A disengaged America would make the second scenario much more likely, but even the comprehensive emergence of the first would require some American accommodation and self-restraint. The Chinese know this, and hence Chinese policy has to be focused primarily on influencing both American conduct and, especially, the critical American-Japanese connection with China's other relationships, manipulated tactically with that strategic concern in mind. China's principal objection to America relates less to what America actually does than to what America currently is and where it is. America is seen by China as the world's current hegemon, whose very presence in the region, based on its dominant position in Japan, works to contain China's influence. In the words of a Chinese analyst employed in the research arm of the Chinese Foreign Ministry, the United States' strategic aim is to seek hegemony in the whole world, and it cannot tolerate the appearance of any big power on the European and Asian continents that will constitute a threat to its leading position. Hence, Simply by being what it is and where it is, America becomes China's unintentional adversary, rather than its natural ally. Accordingly, the task of Chinese policy, in keeping with Sun Tzu's ancient strategic wisdom, is to use American power to peacefully defeat American hegemony, but without unleashing any latent Japanese regional aspirations. To that end, China's geostrategy must pursue two goals simultaneously. As somewhat obliquely defined in August 1994 by Dong Xiaoping, first, to oppose hegemonism and power politics and safeguard world peace, second, to build up a new international political and economic order. The first obviously targets the United States and has as its purpose the reduction in American preponderance, while carefully avoiding a military collision that would end China's drive for economic power. The second seeks to revise the distribution of global power, capitalizing on the resentment in some key states against the current global pecking order, in which the United States is perched at the top, supported by Europe, or Germany, in the extreme west of Eurasia, and by Japan in the extreme east. China's second objective prompts Beijing to pursue a regional geostrategy that seeks to avoid any serious conflicts with its immediate neighbors, even while continuing its quest for regional preponderance. A tactical improvement in Sino-Russian relations is particularly timely, 
especially since Russia is now weaker than China. Accordingly, in April 1997, both countries joined in denouncing hegemonism and declaring NATO's expansion impermissible. However, it is unlikely that China would seriously consider any long-term and comprehensive Russo-Chinese alliance against America. That would work to deepen and widen the scope of the American-Japanese alliance, which China would like to dilute slowly. And it would also isolate China from critically important sources of modern technology and capital. As in Sino-Russian relations, it suits China to avoid any direct collision with India, even while continuing to sustain its close military cooperation with Pakistan and Burma. A policy of overt antagonism would have the negative effect of complicating China's tactically expedient accommodation with Russia, while also pushing India toward a more cooperative relationship with America. To the extent that India also shares an underlying and somewhat anti-Western predisposition against the existing global hegemony, a reduction in Sino-Indian tensions is also in keeping with China's broader geostrategic focus. The same considerations generally apply to China's ongoing relations with Southeast Asia. Even while unilaterally asserting their claims to the South China Sea, the Chinese have simultaneously cultivated Southeast Asian leaders, with the exception of the historically hostile Vietnamese, exploiting the more outspoken anti-Western sentiments, particularly on the issue of Western values and human rights, that in recent years have been voiced by the leaders of Malaysia and Singapore. They have especially welcomed the occasional strident anti-American rhetoric of Prime Minister Datuk Mahathir, of Malaysia, who in a May 1996 forum in Tokyo even publicly questioned the need for the United States-Japan Security Treaty, demanding to know the identity of the enemy the alliance is supposed to defend against and asserting that Malaysia does not need allies. The Chinese clearly calculate that their influence in the region will be automatically enhanced by any diminution of America's standing. In a similar vein, Patient pressure appears to be the motif of China's current policy toward Taiwan. While adopting an uncompromising position with regard to Taiwan's international status, to the point of even being willing to deliberately generate international tensions in order to convey China's seriousness on this matter, as in March 1996, the Chinese leaders presumably realize that for the time being they will continue to lack the power to compel a satisfactory solution. They realize that a premature reliance on force would only serve to precipitate a self-defeating clash with America, while strengthening America's role as the regional guarantor of peace. Moreover, the Chinese themselves acknowledge that how effectively Hong Kong is first absorbed into China will greatly determine the prospect for the emergence of a greater China. The accommodation that has been taking place in China's relations with South Korea is also an integral part of the policy of consolidating its flanks in order to be able to concentrate more effectively on the central goal. Given Korean history and public emotions, a Sino-Korean accommodation of itself contributes to a reduction in Japan's potential regional role and prepares the ground for the re-emergence of the more traditional relationship between China and either a reunited or a still-divided Korea. Most important, the peaceful enhancement of China's regional standing 
will facilitate the pursuit of the central objective, which ancient China's strategist Sun Tzu might have formulated as follows. To dilute American regional power to the point that a diminished America will come to need a regionally dominant China as its ally and eventually even a globally powerful China as its partner. This goal is to be sought and accomplished in a manner that does not precipitate either a defensive expansion in the scope of the American-Japanese alliance, or the regional replacement of America's power by that of Japan. To attain the central objective, in the short run, China seeks to prevent the consolidation and expansion of American-Japanese security cooperation. China was particularly alarmed at the implied increase in early 1996 in the range of U.S.-Japanese security cooperation from the narrower Far East to a wider Asia-Pacific. Perceiving in it not only an immediate threat to China's interests, but also the point of departure for an American-dominated Asian system of security aimed at containing China, in which Japan would be the vital linchpin much as Germany was in NATO during the Cold War. The agreement was generally perceived in Beijing as facilitating Japan's eventual emergence as a major military power, perhaps even capable of relying on force to resolve outstanding economic or maritime disputes on its own. China is thus likely to fan, energetically, the still strong Asian fears of any significant Japanese military role in the region in order to restrain America and intimidate Japan. However, in the longer run, according to China's strategic calculus, American hegemony cannot last, although some Chinese, especially among the military, tend to view America as China's implacable foe. The predominant expectation in Beijing is that America will become regionally more isolated because of its excessive reliance on Japan and that consequently America's dependence on Japan will grow even further. But so will American-Japanese contradictions and American fears of Japanese militarism. That will then make it possible for China to play off America and Japan against each other, as China did earlier in the case of the United States and the Soviet Union. In Beijing's view, the time will come when America will realize that, to remain an influential Asia-Pacific power, it has no choice but to turn to its natural partner on the Asian mainland.